Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters. Today is Friday, November 18th. 2011, and we have a return guest for you today, Mr. Trevor Van Hemert of Pedal to Pedal. That's the guy with the business, with the bicycles, that goes around and picks up people's scraps and turns them into compost and turns that into an income and supports himself and his girlfriend and runs a company by doing that. That was a great story, and we had him on, and he told us all about it. And then you know what we didn't do? We didn't talk about making compost, which is actually what his company does. So he sent me this outline uh, of a presentation that he's given in the past on compost. And I said, why don't you come on back and we'll actually tell people how to make compost since it's the staff of life for our gardening and our homesteading and growing our own food. So he's back to do that today. We'll have him in just a minute. Before I do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, silverandgoldshop.com. Again, silverandgoldshop.com. That is the wonderful Mary Beth Maidmont's operation. They call her wonderful because she takes such good care of you guys. Uh, and it's something very rare and I think very, very needed in the silver and gold precious metals marketplace. It's also getting really close to Christmas, folks. Do you realize that? It's like, I don't know, 40 days or 42 days or something to Christmas. I bet you if your kids are out there with you, they're like, they know how many days it is, right? Um, and you're going to have an opportunity to buy a lot of stuff for Christmas this year for probably the extended family kiddos and stuff like that. Hey, think about putting a silver, an ounce of silver in those little hands and talk to them about how the value of that silver will grow over time just like their value in the world will grow. I bet you. I bet you they have that in their lives longer than that plastic piece of crap from China. Just saying. Just one thought, and remember, I'll also tell you that I think 5 to 10% of your net worth should be in silver and gold. That doesn't mean you go do it all at once. Do it over time. Do it smart. Buy at the right parts of the market cycles, but make sure you have some of that insurance in your investing. Next up today, remember, uh, not remember nothing. Next up today is sponsor number two, uh, Keith Snow of HarvestEating.com. Keith is actually going to be on the show next week. I think we're going to run his show on Tuesday next week talking about cooking for Thanksgiving. It'll just kind of be a fun thing. Uh, kind of like we did last year. We had a great, uh, response to that. Everybody's going to be cooking and have people coming over and going somewhere else and either want to do a great job when people come to your house or bring something special with you. So Keith's going to come talk about that. But day to day, what's he do at Harvest Eating? Well, he teaches you how to cook seasonally and locally with all this great stuff we talk about cooking and growing on our homestead and getting from farmers markets and all this great nutritional, lo nutritious, locally grown food. Well, what do you do with it? Somebody, you know, I had people come over to my house recently. They grow all kinds of stuff and they look down and they'd never grown Swiss chard before. And they said, well, what do you do with it? I'm like, you eat it. They're like, well, how do you prepare it? I'm like, you cut it up and put it in a salad. Well, isn't it bitter? Well, not so much when you put it in with other mixed greens. And it's just there's so many things like that out there. People grow something like a, a daikon radish and go, okay, now what do I do with this? Chef Keith will teach you what to do with that stuff. So get on over to Harvest Eating, especially around the holidays, and learn to make some great stuff. Make sure you pick up his cookbook. Consider a membership in his site. And his steak seasoning rocks. 
Um, every time I cook a steak for somebody using his steak seasoning, it absolutely blows them away. I actually like to add a little bit of salt in addition to it, but I like the fact that it's salt-free. For people that don't want the salt, it's not there. But, for, but it also lets you really use a lot of it, right, and not worry about over-salting and then just using as much salt as you want. Great stuff. Check it out. Uh, next up, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And you can also find the Survival Podcast now streaming on the Prepper Podcast Radio Network, where you'll find a ton of other podcasts about self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members. You'll get discounts to over 29 different vendors now that support the discount program. You'll get over $200 worth of free eBooks. And it'll cost you 20 cents an episode, two dimes. You get off the air, you think, that was worth 20 cents today, Jack? Hey, consider joining the, the uh, member support brigade. Remember, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service. Send me an email, details of your service, and I will send you a national service discount to thank you for your service to our nation. I got an email yesterday from somebody who says, my husband's overseas, and he doesn't really get to listen, but I'm his spouse. Would you consider extending that discount to me You bet your bippy I did that, all right? So uh, where did I get that from? You bet your bippy? That's kind of old school, isn't it? Old school uh, be, uh, leave it to beaver level stuff. Anyway, I don't know. I'm in a goofy mood today. I got a great, great stuff going on. I'm putting in the, uh, the greenhouse that was sent to me by Steve at Steve's Greenhouse today. I've actually got a, a local contractor helping me out, so it'll get done by the time this weekend's over because my kid's coming in next week. We had a holiday week and all, so I'm happy about that. I built an A-frame level. I started putting a second hookah culture bed. I've got the videographer coming in today. He needs some help learning how to edit. We're going to square that away. And uh, we need some more video shot today. So I'm just kind of excited. And I see a lot of great stuff coming here at the end of the year. So maybe that's why I'm a little bit goofy today. But I'll try not to be too goofy for you as I introduce our special guest. And I said during the introduction segment, we are fortunate to have with us today Mr. Trevor Van Hemert of Pedal to Pedal. That's P-E-T-A-L or P-E-D-A-L to P-E-T-A-L. Pedal a bike like pedal a bike to pedal a flower, and he is going to come and talk to us about composting because last time all he talked to us about was mostly his business model. Great stuff. You know the man's an expert on it because it's how he makes his living. So, Trevor, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Well, thanks a lot, Jack. It is good to be back on your show. And I know we wanted to go into composting, but um, if you want, we can do kind of a follow-up on the last show, on what's happened since then. Sure. Why don't you tell us where you've, uh, where you've gone kind of since the last time you were on then? Well, what, what I wanted to talk about was um, how great your listener base is and how many of them came and emailed me and told me how much they liked what I was doing and how many of them want to start Pedal to Pedals up in their own city. I was actually shocked by the number of people um, who I'm now communicating with who are trying to start up one of these in their city. And it's all people who listen to you. Um, so I just, I just wanted to let you know, um, about that, about that great development. And I, that's I, awesome. I it's really neat. Yeah. I mean, that really is awesome. And, I, it, you know, like I said, when you were on before, I think what you're doing is in itself awesome. And I think it has, You know, probably it's like a multi-headed monster that can go a lot of ways from here and become, you know, even more. And uh, I'm pretty excited. I actually just got a DVD in the mail today from uh, Jeff Lawton on uh, urban permaculture. And I know there's a oh, lot yeah. of a lot of similar uh, similar or sim, sim, symbiosis between what you're doing and whole urban permaculture things. So 
Very, very cool. And, I mean, whenever I hear anybody's doing anything because of the show, that just makes me feel good. <laughs> no kidding. Um, yeah, and I'm, and I'm looking forward to that DVD as well, the uh, Urban Permaculture one, which I haven't gotten yet. But um, so I guess we can launch right into it. We have an outline and everything already. Yep. So uh, my first topic is what is actual compost? Now, this is sort of a definition that I heard from Jeff Lawton, who you just mentioned. Um, compost is a very specific material, and it's the end product of decomposition. And it's actually a very, very, very fine particle size, similar to the particle size of clay, um, so people will often call the food scraps, they'll call that compost or they'll call that their compost pail, which isn't technically correct. Um, it's, it's useful in kind of colloquial, as a colloquialism, but. And to be fair, eventually it will become compost. That's absolutely correct. So, and that's, that's why people are kind of stuck. In so that it's, definition. it's more accurately potential compost. That's that's a great term for it. Potential compost. Kitchen scraps has always been kind of an awkward word for me, so I, I'll, I'll just refer to it as compost sometimes myself. Um, so compost, what we, what we can use it for is um, fertilizing the plants we grow um, and making it so that those those nutrients are once again available for the next generation of plants. So if you're not using compost, you've got to use nutrients from somewhere. And where we use it from now is is uh, natural gas fertilizers, which are very, very cheap, which is why a business like mine can't make any money selling compost, because we are competing with some of the cheapest fertilizer available in human history, which is natural gas fertilizers. That's why we have to make all of our money on the pickup end, and the actual compost to us isn't worth anything. We give it away because um, people won't pay what it's really, really worth if, if we didn't have the natural gas fertilizers. Of course, I mean, we should note on that, the natural gas fertilizers, the reason they're so cheap isn't because it's actually cheap to go extract natural gas for the purpose of making fertilizer. They're cheap because we're extracting natural gas for natural gas, and these are a byproduct mm. uh, that, that is being utilized as a fertilizer. If, if they had to just go, if they, we didn't use the gas for energy, and they had to go get it that way, it would not be cheap. Okay, and um, yes, maybe. I, I don't know. I don't know the natural gas industry very well myself. My impression would be that. Um, it would still be cheaper than, than actual compost that you're reusing, but maybe not. Um, so composting is actually something that nature does by itself. Um, anytime you get a nitrogen source and a carbon source together, then it's creating compost, or what we might even just call soil. Um, when the leaves fall on the ground in the autumn, they turn essentially into compost. Anything they cover... Um, breaks down. So all we do when we build piles is copy this forest um, system of leaf composting and do that in our backyards in a way that speeds it up quite a bit. Uh, and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on this. Um, yeah. When we do compost, we're into this high-energy system, basically. When stuff breaks down in a forest... It's mostly a fungal-based breakdown. 
And when stuff breaks down, like in a grassland, it's mostly a bacterial-based breakdown. Does that does that have any significance whatsoever with our composting procedures? Is is either one of them there, or is it just more of a chemical reaction? Um, the composting that we're typically doing is primarily bacterial, um, and the fungal part comes in in the later stage. Um, I have a great document on on compost ecology that I don't have completely memorized, but it's primarily bacterial. Um, fungal is, I think, the last stage, and in between you have larger organisms, stuff you can see like um, uh, the long crawly worms and the pill bugs and stuff like that is what you get in the middle. So you have different stages, um, a whole ecosystem going on at the different stages of the compost pile. Um, the, the way the fungal, the, the fungal method, I think might, you might be able to, um, kind of copy that by doing the trench composting, which you mentioned on a previous show. That's actually the first composting that we ever did. Um, and that's actually an anaerobic compost. Now, do you know the difference between an anaerobic and an aerobic composting Well, one's in the absence of oxygen and one is in the presence of oxygen. That's right, but there are benefits of anaerobic and there are benefits of aerobic. Now, when you're doing anaerobic, you're actually, you're actually saving a lot more of that nitrogen. You're not getting a lot of off-gassing because the system, by its very nature, is being impaired from oxygen means that it's contained. And in that containment, whatever off-gas it pushes, gets pushed into the earth, becomes part of the soil composition, where if we have an open system, a lot of our off-gassing goes up instead of in. That's, how, that's my understanding anyway. And, and that's correct. But, but a lot of what you're off-gassing is stuff you want to be off-gassing, which is why we prefer not to do anaerobic composting, because it also produces alcohol. And it produces um, another caustic chemical and, and yet another one. I don't have them in front of me. But it produces this soup of chemicals that will essentially be bad for your plants unless you then take it out of that anaerobic environment and let it cure for a while. So Correct. that these chemicals can then, again... Um, Again, off gas. And, and this is part of like when you drive by a swamp somewhere and it's never had anybody dump any sewage into it or any garbage into it or anything. And at certain times of the year, you drive by there and you go, well, that stinks like a sewer. Yeah. And that's natural anaerobic compost sludge off gassing up through the water. And that's it's right. when the, the swamp smells like a giant fart. And in essence, that's kind of what it is. That's right. Um, and, and it's great when, when you smell it, and this is the same thing that's true for brewing beer. Um, if you're smelling it, then it's not going to be in your brew. So you're smelling hops the whole time you're boiling it. That means it's not in your beer anymore. Uh, which is why you, you add your aroma, aromic hops right at the end so that you can have that flavor in the beer. It's the same as true for, for the swamp. If you smell it, then it's not in the swamp anymore. So um, you're, you're allowing it to air out, in essence. Almost like nature knows what it's doing. <laughs> As if nature knows what it's doing. That's that's right. And what we do is we 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 take we take a, a page from the book of nature and we just try to speed it up a lot because um, we we are composting a lot more stuff than nature 
nature normally would um, in in one in one place. But it is so, really matching nature, and this is like an interesting thing I just noticed. Uh, I had some culture beds put in this summer, and the dozer did some damage to the land around the area. So the only thing I could do to quickly patch that was to throw down some cover crop seed. And it was a mixture of vetch and cowpea and some other stuff, and it didn't grow everywhere. It grew in some places, and I'm kind of addressing it from here forward. But all the places that are full of cowpea and vetch and everything like that right now, as the leaves fall off, guess what? All the leaves are getting stuck in there, right? So the cowpea dies first from the cold. Now I've got a green and a brown together, and I've got the vetch and the uh, kyasote still holding it there. And each one of those is like this little mini compost pile. And what you're doing and what we're doing when we go to a higher level is we're doing that exact thing, combining that green and that brown at specific ratios and in higher volume. And I love the composting in place thing because composting, especially when you have 12 sites around the city and each one is two yards on average, is a huge amount of work. And I'm still sore from a pile I flipped two days ago because it's a ton, <laughs> it's a ton of work um, doing this stuff. And I'm and I'm young, you know. I I'm at my peak in physical fitness um, that I'll be in my life, but it's just still a lot of work. So. Um, I, I'd, I'd love to maybe get a huge thousand gallon drum, although there's some legal constraints we have with large quantities produced from a single site, um, or something to just make it easier. And, and, and the trench composting is a great method. Um, we're looking into getting some livestock that will, that will eat the, uh, scraps for us, which is, you know, the, the much quicker than the 18 days that Jeff Lawton can do it in. It's 24 hours. You're producing something usable um, if you can put it through the digestive system of an animal. Um, and I, I, I like that you mentioned the carbon sources because when a lot of people get started in composting, they don't understand that it needs to be not just the food stuff or the green stuff, but that you have to add kind of a carbon feedstock to it. Um now, we've tried almost everything as a carbon feedstock, and I think for the average person composting only their materials, the leaves are going to be one of their best options. Now, leaves have a carbon-nitrogen ratio of 1 to 60 or 1 to 70. And as you know, Jack, when you're, when you're making compost, your goal is a carbon-nitrogen ratio of 1 to 30. Correct. So... If you've got leaves at 1 to 60 and you've got food scraps at 1 to 15 or 1 to 20, then you can, you can do the math to find the proper proportion of leaves to food scraps. And, and a good rule of thumb is it's about 1 to 1. Um, Correct. To food. And now, I can tell you what I always did when I was doing like these smaller systems where you, cause you're getting enough to do it properly, right? And a lot of us are get, are not getting enough to do it properly cause like yeah. Lawton calls it like trying to add batter to a cake when it's half baked. Mm. But with a three bin system that I put together built out of garbage cans, basically I would take leaves, run them over with the, the lawnmower and keep them in piles somewhere and then, you know, take shredded ones and put them in a bucket. And they're dry and in that bucket with a five-gallon bucket with a lid. I'd set that next to my bed. And every time I dump a load of kitchen scraps in there, I grab a handful, a couple handfuls of leaves and cover the scraps with it. And I, I would just keep doing that. And I really actually never thought about the ratio, but you're you're getting real close to a one-to-one -one ratio right there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Or if I would cut the grass and I had these patches of clover, when I'd go over the clover, I'd switch the thing from side inject to bag, and I'd bag just that bit. And then mm. I'd go throw that bag in the bin, and then I would dump the leaves on top of it. And then again, you're right back to a one-to-one ratio. But to me, it was Red Jack Engineering. I wasn't really doing any math. <laughs> yeah, and that's and you know what? Compost is going to happen, whether you know what you're doing or not. Um, the Doing it properly just seems to speed it up a lot more. And for us, that's very important. For your average home dweller, it's a little bit important, but um, it's not nearly as crucial. Now, what we do that's different from what most people will want to do is we use an extremely, extremely carbon-dense source for what we're doing. And the importance of that is our carbon source is a 1 to 700 ratio. It's very, very, very high in carbon. But that's important because when we're hauling it around, we have to haul one-tenth of the amount from our main storage site as we would if we were using leaves. Because, again, leaves are only about 1 to 70. What we use are wood chips, which are 1 to 700, so they're far, far, far more carbon dense. We have to use far less of them um, in relation to the amount of food scraps. Which, when and you're dragging stuff around on a bicycle, probably is quite helpful. Very, very helpful. It's made a huge difference. Um, it's really brought our business out of the Stone Age. Um, using wood chips are, are a real boon to the business and make everything more more profitable. And it even makes the compost much, much better. But what we'll often do, and I want to use your, your cake analogy, is we will bake a really, really shitty cake. And then we'll use that crappy cake to bake another cake. And then we'll use that cake to bake another cake. So we'll actually put our compost through several cycles um, to get the finished compost because our, our carbon content is so, so high that you wouldn't really want to use it after only one cycle. So at about three cycles, sometimes even four, you've got a really big batch of really awesome compost. So just so I'm, I'm understanding you correctly, in some ways what you've got is that first batch We've really done a job on the nitrogen, but there's a lot of carbon left in there. So now I can bring in another nitrogen source again and use that carbon again and then bring in more nitrogen and maybe some more carbon, but mostly I'm re, I'm running that carbon portion through three cycles and I'm continuing to add nitrogen. Like I get a time release of this carbon. That's right. And that would not be the method that most people would benefit from using. It's a very, very unique composting method that really, really works for us because of our unique situation. And my impression is that a lot of that nitrogen is off-gassed and probably more than in your, in your normal system. For us, nitrogen is a liability um, in our interesting circumstance because that's what we get paid to take away. So if we lose a lot of nitrogen into the atmosphere, it doesn't really affect us. Um, it only makes our job easier. But so you have this, a massive nitrogen footprint. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's right. And we're sequestering an immense amount of carbon as well. So, interesting dynamic yeah, there. We have a big nitrogen footprint. Um, so and, and I don't know. We could run some soil tests and see if we're, in fact, losing much more than, um, than in just doing a single batch. It'd be interesting to do some soil ha- tests. Have you tested your compost end product to see kind of what your ratio is? Is it like a one 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 ratio or, or what have you? Um, I we we've just we're just finally finishing our first batch 
of the compost that we've made in this unique method. We've only been using the wood chips for about nine months, and it's taken about nine months for us to send a compost bin through several cycles where it's actually compost now. So we're only just now coming into um, some finished compost from this method, and it's really, really nice stuff. But it would be good to do uh, a soil test to see um, the product we're doing. Maybe maybe it's still high in carbon, um, and we'd like to know, okay, do we need to like do, do half the amount of nitrogen we'd normally do to get it to a really, really good um, in product, but again, the in product isn't as important um, for what we're doing because you can't. Make You're dealing with the waste from LA. But the reason I bring that up is I think that, I mean, I've always tried to explain this to people this way: compost is probably the greatest source of fertility on the planet for growing anything in. Mm-hmm. But compost is not fertilizer. Because if you tell somebody a typical mm-hmm. nitrogen phosphorus potassium ratio. For compost is about one one one, and it can mm-hmm. be a half one a half, right? Whatever they say. Well, that doesn't sound like much, but it's a hundred percent, right? It's a yeah, it's a ratio. I can take compost two feet deep and plant into it directly. I don't even have to have soil. I can grow in compost directly. If so, if you look at a, whether it's a chemical fertilizer like a five ten five, or even something that's like a 12 uh, part nitrogen zero zero fertilizer, like fermented beet juice, that's an organic fertilizer. It would be ridiculous to think that you're going to make a compost with that type of a percentage of nitrogen or potassium or phosphorus, because that's a fertilizer, which is an amendment where compost can be used as amendment, but really it is it is in essence life giving soil. It's soil. You're you're building soil when you're when you're building compost. The growing medium itself. Which I think that I think it's very important that people don't when they hear like a compost being a one one one, don't discount the amount of fertility per cubic foot that's there. It's a, it's immense. Well yeah, and we get stuck in the very narrow minded thinking of those three key ingredients, which were the ingredients that the I think the guy who started the Green Revolution, and I'm sure your listeners will correct me on that, um, came up with the PD, the, what is it, the ratio, the P? NPK. NPK ratio. Um, that's a very narrow-minded thinking, and that's, that's really only relevant. It's, it's more relevant for grains. Um, it's, it's like, it's like thinking in two dimensions when you live in a three-dimensional world. Because we have all these things called like micronutrients and minerals and things like that. And And ecology, soil ecology. Correct. So we've got life in the soil as well. And that's, like, these guys are all focused on NPK with this soil. But if you go out to a modern farm and you go out there and you stick your hands into what's there that they call soil and you you pick it up, it doesn't look like dirt. It doesn't look like anything that you and I would call dirt. It's a dusty, and the color's like a neutral color. It doesn't have that darkness, that richness, that earthiness. And all of that life not being there, even if the nitrogen is, like, for an example, there's, uh, Howard Garrett, who's, they call him the dirt doctor, organic farmer type guy, or organic gardener type guy down in Texas, runs a talk show, was talking about how all of these, um, pecan orchards down there are, the trees are having, uh, potassium deficiencies. It was either potassium or phosphorus, one of the P's, right? So they go out and they test the field and the farmers are like, how the hell is this possible? We've been putting fertilizer out here forever. 
So they go out and they analyze the soil. And they go, you guys have like 10 times more phosphorus or potassium, whichever one it was, than you're supposed to have. And they're like, well, we've been using the recommended amount of fertilizer for 20 years. So mm-hmm. what does that mean? Well, it means the tree's not using it. It's there and available, but some other component that is enabling the tree that we don't understand is absent. So just like if you want to take a calcium supplement in your body, you better be taking magnesium. If there's not that life in the soil, you can have all the potassium or phosphorus or nitrogen you want, and much of it becomes not bioavailable to the plant. Mm, because you're missing some of those smaller nutrients. And, and you don't know what they are because you've killed them all. Well, and because we there's so much, we may understand 3%, and there's still 97% we don't understand. And if you wanted to hedge your bets, you just do what nature's been doing for 4 billion years, and it's going to work because it's got a great track record. NPK does not have that kind of track record. It's got a 30-year or 40-year track record. So like you said with the guy who's been fertilizing for 20 years, we're now running into the problems that, um, NPK, um, inherently has just, just by, by its own nature. It's not that he did anything wrong. It's, that was the nature of the NPK method. It doesn't work. It's a 30 to 50 year system, right? And we're trying to do something that's a four, and we're introducing it into a four billion year system. Yeah. It'll, it'll work for 30 years. It'll Correct. work fine, right? Yeah. So. But it also, see, my problem with, with fertilizer, I don't think fertilizer in and of itself is evil. If you have a great garden and you do all kinds of soil amendments and compost and stuff like that, and when you grow your corn about mid-season, that corn starts to languish a little bit, and you throw a little bit of NPK just where that corn is, and next year you grow something else, I don't think you've really heard anything. But when you use it for everything all the time, then you give yourself freedom to not worry about organic matter and minerals and soil content and soil life. And in 10 years, you've burned everything up in that soil, and it's dead, inert matter. And you might as well have just gone out and grown stuff in gravel to begin with. Uh-huh. And that's that's my bigger problem with fertilizer is it's a, it's a, it's abused – rather than used as, like, a supplement. So, like, if you need B12, you can take a B12 vitamin, but if you ate some meat, right, I'm just saying, you, you'd get most of your B12 that way. And instead of being a symptomatic um, amendment used on very rare occasions for very specific acute needs, we've turned a fertilizer as something we dump onto the ground. Well, that's right, and, and, and fertilizer is in many ways um, an amphetamine or, or a drug where if it's used in the appropriate situation, um, then it can be a beneficial thing. But if it's something you depend on, then you're going to ruin yourself. It's it's like it's like any drug, like a like a pharmaceutical drug, a painkiller or or morphine or something. You can get really messed up um, with morphine, or it can be something that's that's actually very beneficial if used in the in the proper. Um, context, just like fertilizer. Which would be a very, very minor portion of your life. So let's talk about some of the the concerns people have with with, with composting, some of the bin types people can use. Um, You have on your outline rat-proof outdoor compost bins. I've always had people, what about little critters running into my compost? And actually in Victoria, we have a huge rat population. And the reason for that is because we've got a lot of really old houses and we're surrounded by water, and that's a perfect um, habitat for a lot of rats. 
Um, so it's very, very important uh, to have our bins very rat-proof and even mouse-proof. And rats can fit in a tiny, tiny little hole. Um, the coin we use is called the loony. And it's probably about the same size as a 50-cent piece in the States, maybe a little bit smaller. And a rat will fit into that. And a mouse will fit in a space the size of a nickel. So the idea is to make there be no spaces, even the size of a nickel, in anywhere around your bin. And we achieve that um, primarily with hardware cloth. We've been using quarter-inch, but you could do half-inch and we'll start using half-inch hardware cloth. It's actually a bit stronger and cheaper. So I think half-inch hardware cloth is probably the way to go. And you line the three walls of your bin and the floor with this, because rats and mice will burrow. Um, if you've got this massive, massive food source for them, they will work their butts off to get into that pile. Um so we line the floor and the three walls, the sides and back, with hardware cloth. The front wall will be slats, typically, um, although I started building um, bins with just a wall on the front as well with a hinge on it that we can open. Um, for, your, for your home person, the slat method will probably work better. And then we have a very tight-fitting uh, lid on the top, which is hinged as well. So that there are no spaces. So it's like Fort Knox. Interesting. Because um, we, we use a thing called Felius Catus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it, we, have this, and, we have this old warrior cat named Ralph, and if he ever, yeah. whenever there are any rats or mice, we always know, and this is kind of disgusting, but you can just throw it in the compost bin as a warning to others. Um, <laughs> you generally leave the face. It just, it's weird. It's like from the, from the ears forward. Uh, sitting on the porch looking at you, so you open the door, and there's this little rat or mouse face, and that's like the only part he doesn't eat, and he, he stands there and looks at you like, see what I've done? Oh, well, then you can <laughs> compost that. Yeah, exactly. It's a um, warning to others, as I've said. And I'll be completely honest with you, there are some sites where we rely more on Felius Caddis than um, proper bin uh, construction, because if you've got cats... In the area, well, then there's no rats in the bin, or there's the rats in the bin don't last long. Well, so. it, well, here's the interesting thing with cats: they're smart. There's a lot smarter than we give them credit for. So yep. if you have an attractive source for rodents, um, the first couple of times they kind of stumble into it, but then they're like, "Oh, I see." So they'll just camp out and wait, and and, and it's not like they're guarding it; they just know that like they're stupid and they'll come here and I can kill them. And, uh, yeah, they're very, very effective. And, like, you don't have a lot of snakes up there, but down in the south, we no have a lot snakes. of rat snakes and corn snakes and things like that. And all I can say, folks, is don't kill those things because you're killing off your rodent patrol right there. That's like the spiders. If you don't like mosquitoes, well, then you want to breed spiders. It's very simple. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so that, that covers the rat-proof part. What about worm bins, especially for people like in apartments or things like that? Yeah, well, worm, worm bins are a, a fairly new method of composting that allows you to do it actually indoors. And it, it composts very, very quickly as well. So you can have a small bin um, that your entire household can be depositing their food into. And, and what you want to do, I, I don't want to get super, super technical, but you've got a bedding, which is where the worms live. So that can be shredded paper or leaves or something. And then you've got the food. 
So you can't just have a worm bin with only food. They need the bedding as well. And they actually eat the bedding. Um, and once you run out of bedding, then you need to um, harvest the worm bin and put new bedding in. And then you can start feeding the worms again. And the worms are a very specific type of worm called a red wriggler. Um, and they thrive in a very, very nutrient-rich environment. So if you threw your regular old earthworm in there, it's almost like it's too much food for it. Um, and it's not going to thrive the same way a red wriggler worm will. Um, I don't know the, the specific numbers, but one pound... Oh, I do. One pound of red wrigglers will eat one pound of food scraps every day. So um, I, I, I think most people probably aren't producing more than more than one pound a day. So, And then the good news with that is the worms are like self-regulating, kind of like a goldfish. If you put a goldfish in a little fishbowl, it'll stay a small goldfish. If you put it in a tank, it'll become a much bigger fish. And with, with, with red worms and any type of composting worm, they'll kind of regulate their population to the amount of food that you have available for them. That's so, right, and the uh, and the amount of space in the bin as well. Correct. Um, and that's that's the basic um, summary of the worm bin. It's it's a great method, like you said, for people in apartment buildings or people living in a basement suite without um, access to to a compost bin. So when when people email me and say I'd like you to pick up my compost, and they live way the heck out there. I'll often tell them about the worm bin and how to build their own. Um, you can do it with a couple Rubbermaids and a drill. It's that. It's it's very it's a very very easy thing to set up. There is a little bit of maintenance involved. You need to understand how to troubleshoot your worm bin. Like if it's starting to attract flies, then you need to know how to deal with that. And if it's too dry, well then you need to wet it. So it does take a little bit of maintenance, but it's actually quite easy once you know how to um, take care of one. It's quite it's quite easy to keep your worms alive. So and we get a get get a, get a great byproduct from that as well. With I guess you'd just call it worm juice. Worm worm. Well, you get worm juice, um, which will fall, which will uh, leak out from the bin. So you'll need some holes in it, and you also get worm castings, which is um, sort of the compost product. So that's their uh, their waste, which which you can use in much the same way you'd use. Um, compost, and that's what you harvest out. And it is poisonous to the worms. So if if you've all you've got is castings, then that's when you need to um, when you need to harvest it. So and there's a couple ways to harvest it, and and there's great information online on how well, to. There's an easy it. way though, because like the worms hate light, right? So you take your worm bin, you open it up, and you scrape off all of the castings until all the worms are gone, until they all go down. And then you just leave the light exposed for a while, and then they go down. And you just keep doing that down in layers, and you start kind of, you go down to like one little segment uh, area, and all your worms will just keep basically retreating from the light into that area. They hate the light. And then you can start to restock it with more bedding and what have you. Um, I've also seen systems where people build them into like a bench on a, on a, on a deck. So, like, you don't even know they're there, and they basically just keep, like, adding food to one side and taking away castings from the other, and they basically send the worms in a circle, you know, around yep. and around the bench. There's That's the migration method, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, worms are pretty basic creatures. They don't like light, they need a certain amount of moisture, and they like food, and you can use those three factors to make them go wherever you want. It's not real hard to outthink a worm. <laughs> That's right, Um and one other thing, I guess, about the worm bins is you can keep them outside. 
Um, but a lot of winters will kill them. Um, and I've seen people with insulated worm bins and, and those seem to work okay. So it is, it is almost like having a hundred little pets that are very easy to take care of, very simple, but, um, they are alive. So they take a little bit more nurturing, um, than your ordinary compost pile would. So you have to make sure they don't freeze to death. Sure. Cause they have a very limited ability to thermoregulate, right? That's right. Like they're in this container. But like, if you want to do it outside and make it work, leave your bin open to the ground, and then they'll go down subsoil. Well, at least you're you're, you're night. Then you're moving to. I really shouldn't even go there. It's a different type of worm call. <laughs> but, but it's just it's cool. There's so many ways you can go. On your outline for me, you also had earth bins. Uh, yeah. What's that? I, I'm really not familiar with the term at all. Okay, well, I, it's probably a, a brand name or a product name. These are those black bins you see that look like half of an egg. They're they're sort of like a dome. Um, have you seen, do you, do you have those in the States? Have you seen, they've got I, a lid on them? I think maybe it is a branding thing. We ha- don't have, I've never seen anything that looks like an egg. What we have are these bins that are sold in like the big box stores and all. They basically look like a square garbage can without a bottom. And, and I'm thinking they're probably kind of similar then. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, yeah, ours are like a dome. Yours are like a can. And, and like you said, they don't have a bottom. Um, and those are fine. And what a lot of municipalities, at least here in Canada, do is, is they'll give you one of those for free. Um, they usually cost a hundred something dollars, but they want you to compost because then they have to haul less garbage away. And we have a very, very tight, uh, garbage system here, uh, especially on the island. We have one landfill that's full over capacity and we're, we're having to send our trash to Washington at great expense. So people are, uh, the government is happy to give away these. It's just a plastic shell, um, so that we can start handling more of our own garbage ourselves. Uh, 30% of the garbage stream here in Victoria is food, stuff that's compostable. Um, so these earth bins are something to, and that's just what they call them around in, in Victoria. These earth bins are something, um, something that allows you to do home composting very, very easily. Um, some of the benefits of them are that they have a little, that, well, first of all, they're, they're inherently rat proof because they've only got small slits on the side and a lid that, um, screws on very easily. So, so it really, it really makes it, um, a lot easier to, to deal with, with the, the rat thing. Um, and they've got a little door on the bottom where you can harvest your completed soil, uh, right from the bottom of it. So it's, it's sort of like an ongoing, process, you'll load in the top and you'll harvest out of the bottom and it just works. Um, but you're never going to reach high temperatures in there. You're never going to reach uh, hot composting, which is where you have the yard or more uh, size compost pile with one of these small earth bins. So some of the drawbacks of that are you're not killing as many diseases off um, and you're not killing weed seeds off. So what you harvest out of these earth bins, you, you can still get a lot of weeds popping up. And actually at the house I live at, we have earth bins and, and the weeds always come out of, out of the compost created in them. So that's one of the drawbacks of the earth bins, but they're a great idea and lots and lots of people have them and people at the community gardens have them as well. So they work. And can you uh, counter some of that with like a multi-bin system? Sorry. Can you counter some of those disadvantages by moving to like a system where you're using multiple bins? 
Oh, yeah. Um, multiple large bins where you get hot composting, then you you don't have a problem with weed seeds anymore. They seem to all get burned up um, by the very, very hot temperatures we achieve. So 160 degrees is where, where the large batch compost uh, piles will will achieve. Um, which is the, the recommended temperature of your water boiler. So you could run pipe. You could run a coil of copper pipe in the middle of a batch composter and take showers and take Paul Wheaton did this and he took a hundred hot showers out of one compost bin, which is really remarkable. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of things you can do with that. Uh, Clayton Jacobs. I don't know if you're familiar with him at all. No. He does the soil cube, the thing where you make you for starting your plants by. Oh yeah, soil we have cube. a soil cuber. Yeah, so he had this greenhouse, and to supplement heat the greenhouse, he put a great big huge pile of compost back in one corner, and then he would start a second pile so that by the time the first one had really kind of gone through things, there was another one taking over, and he'd pull it out and keep doing that. Well, then he got like this brilliant idea, and he took like a water tank for reserve, and then ran a coil of, of used plastic tubing, I believe, ran it out and uphill to the beds that he had outside of his greenhouse that he had covered with row covers, ran that tubing through the beds and then back down. So just natural process, heat goes up. So the water would come out of one side and by just heat thermal pressure get pumped through, and then as it would cool, it would fall back down and re replenish and keep going in a circle. And he not only heated his greenhouse with the residual effects, but using this hot water that was a passive system, was able to pump water under his row covers of all his plants in his garden beds. And he said he'd go out in the mornings when it was like 25 degrees out, and there'd be steam coming off of the gardens. No kidding. So, I mean, it's, it's unlimited what we can do with this. You just need enough stuff uh, to have a large enough volume to do it with. And what was he using as his... As his stuff, it couldn't have been just what his family was. Producing. No, he was acquire. I think he was basically acquiring a lot of raw materials throughout the year and mm. stockpiling it and running his most of his composting operation in the winter. So oh, he would do most yeah. of his composting in winter, he'd use his compost through the summer. And I don't know where he would get all his green matter. Now he's in California, where there's always some green matter, right? It's not like the Great White North where pff, you're done, you know, because you can't <laughs> store greens. That's the problem with. The store and, 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 and then, you know, use model is if I cut green clover and I leave it sit around long enough, it becomes a brown. Yeah, it does. It becomes a carbon source. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's what I think he was doing based on the interview I had with him. Mm. And there, and there is so much matter available. If, if anybody's hesitant to try to start up a hot composting system, there is so much opportunity out there. Um, what, what the, our main site, our main garbage storage site used to be managed by a guy who ran a hundred chickens in there and built soil and he would sell off the soil. But what he did for food scraps is he brought a wheelbarrow to the local grocery store and asked them, Hey, do you have any food scraps? And they'd fill them up every time for nothing. So there's an immense amount of food waste in our society. And, and if you can just find a way to get it. Um, then you can you can do a lot a lot of stuff with sure with a couple of restaurants and a couple of small grocery stores and, and you would literally That's never be able to take need. all that they would give you. That's right. That's all you need. So don't think you can't do it. Um, the oper- 
the 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 niche is unexploited all over all over the nation and and we've hardly tapped into it here and and we're making a living and we're we've got nine employees and and it's hardly tapped at all what we can do with this amazing uh food resource and i guess that's what it all boils down to is we're we are we are dealing in this amazing food resource that is so far unused yeah i think it's amazing how much of it's unused and i think that we have no idea in america how valuable this stuff is to people in other parts of the world because the stuff we throw away they eat <laughs> that's right? and, that's and they, right. they, they have no, they, you know the organic matter is like gold in places where you're trying to feed yourself by growing food unfortunately many of those places due to tradition they also take the organic matter they do have and burn it uh, <laughs> and then you go really but i mean you know people learn what they learn from a, from growing up let's talk a little bit about anaerobic digesters because there's another way to do things there yeah, this is, uh, this is a, it's, it's sort of a cone that sits over a pit, and it's the easiest way to compost. Um, you just throw stuff in it, and it will break it down anaerobically, and usually people don't harvest them. Um, like I said, all it is is a cone that's sort of airtight over a pit, and you just throw stuff in the pit and it will it will break down and since it's in an absence of oxygen it will break down in an anaerobic way and the way people will kind of use what goes into that bin is it will have a very um nutrient rich leachate that um leaks into the surrounding into the soil surrounding your actual anaerobic unit um so they'll plant things around the anaerobic unit and they're kind of ugly so they'll kind of plant Stuff that shades it from view. Um, most people, <clears throat> most people, if it's a family, will want two anaerobic digesters. Um, one that is just sitting and and lurking and 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 doing its thing, and one that they can actually fill, and then they'll, and then they'll swap between them. So this is sort of a one on the scale from one to five of how easy um, how easy a compost uh, system. You can have um, hot composting is probably a five, and a worm bin is probably somewhere in the middle. So if you don't want to think about it, this is the method for you, the the anaerobic digestion method. And we're also very close to an alternative energy source there, because now all I have to do now is yeah. put that system, that same system you just described, into a containment area where the off gas is pressurized, and I'm producing methane, and I'm making biomass. Very much, yeah. And that's natural gas, you bet. And then we start to see the tie-in, and now we understand why we can get NPK from a natural gas well. Mm. Um, it's not the same thing at all. You've got an organic compost um, in the situation that we're describing, but it's basically the same, the same process. It's just that we're talking about a modern or a, a, a present-day process where the waste is immediately available and it's not locked up and we don't have to do anything to extract it except utilize it. So that's really cool. Um, what about if we want to get stuff done fast? If we have the material and we want like, you know, two, three weeks, we want our compost from stuff to compost. Well, if you want to compost really, really fast, and this is the method that we were discussing before about, uh, that Jeff Lawton was referring to. And this is the Berkeley method of composting. Um, developed at UC Berkeley University of California. Um, and what you do is increase the surface area to volume ratio of everything 
in the pile as much as you can. So, and this is something we're hoping to do very, very soon, but what we need to do is purchase a shredder or a chipper, something that will turn our wood chips into wood dust, just as as much surface area as possible. Um, now, when you do this and you build a large pile, it will squeeze out all the air, um, which will start to create a lot of anaerobic, which is what we don't want because we can't lose sites by um, having bad smells. So we do primarily aerobic um, composting. So when you have all this very, very finely processed material that's food and carbon stock, you have to flip it every single day um, if you want to get it done really, really quick. So that's what Jeff Lawton was talking about in that video, is shredding everything up really, really fine and flipping it every single day. Now, you could flip it every week, and that'd be okay. Um, but if you want it done really quick, uh, flip it every single day, and it will be gone before you know it. Like you mentioned the uh, wallaby, the roadkill wallaby that yep. they put into into a Berkeley compost system. And it was gone in nine days. You could, I think it, you said it was bones. It was 18, well, 18 days. They found one speck of one piece of one bone and it was black. And they had to search <laughs> through it and, and basically go, is that a rock or is that, and they were able to look at them and, and go, and that was the only thing in an 18 day cycle of a road killed wallaby on one of the projects Lawton did. And they were flipping it every two days. Hmm. And, and so that is the kind of speed that's possible. And I think that his number, though, was if you don't have a cubic meter when you're trying to do this, forget about it. That's that's the minimum amount that you need. And his thing was when you do it this way, what's very, very interesting is you don't lose a lot of volume, right? They, they, when you start with a cubic meter, you end up with almost a full cubic meter, wow. which is insane because when I do a Rubbermaid 32-gallon can – I end up with a quarter of a rubber made 32 gallon mm -hmm. can, right? But it takes me 90 days to do my cycle where he's taking 18. And he's starting with more. It, I, part of it is just the material is more fine to begin with, right? That's, so if you have buff material, it's going to have a lot more airspace in it, just like you were saying. So, yeah, and, and with your method, a lot of that air is going out. And I'd be curious to know um, if he starts with a cubic meter and ends with a cubic meter, how much of that is because the materials didn't off-gas, and how much of that is just because the material was so much finer to begin with, so much more tightly packed. That's that's very interesting. That. See, and I believe it's more the, the second one than the first one, because what I will tell you is when I have a full can of the material on stage one, let's call it, and I pick it up, there's some weight to it, but it's mm. not that much weight, and it's really like half composted on the bottom and totally uncomposted on the top. When I get it into the second bin, and that bin ends up after it's gone through its, and that, that second bin, it'll go through in two weeks, and it'll be almost done, and it'll be only about half full. And when you pick that up, it's just as heavy as the first mm. one was. And when you dump that into the, the third bin and you let it finish up, it might be 30%, but it's heavy. Mm. Right? So, there, so I think that you would have to have just your weight, I don't think I'm losing as much weight as I'm losing apparent volume, is what I'm saying. Mm. And I think that's what he's doing, too. Sure, sure. Because you know, if you have, I mean, just think about it. If you have a bunch of feathers uh, and you put them in a pile, they'll take up a certain amount of space. If you put them into a bag and suck the air out of it, they'll take up a, f a much smaller amount of space. 
or those sponges that look like business cards. Sure. Um, that you wet and suddenly it's way, way bigger. Correct. Exactly. That's, that's kind of what I'm thinking there. So, um, what about utilizing livestock is either a replacement or a component of your composting? Oh yeah. Well, livestock, as I mentioned before, if you think 14 days is quick, try putting compost through a rabbit because a rabbit will create what's called rabbit pellets. We don't even call them turds because it's so, it's such a special thing for gardening and rabbit, rabbit pellets are one of the, one of the most sought after um, animal manure additions to a garden because you can use it right away. You don't have to let it sit around. So you can you can create something usable in your garden in a day or in two days um, just by putting it through the digestive system of an animal. And then you get an animal. So you get rabbit pelts and rabbit meat and you get chicken eggs and you get bacon. So you get this really quick composting method and you get a animal product that that you can sell or you can eat or you can use um and i think i think put it i think um using livestock is probably the best most ideal method um of composting and i'd love to have pigs and i'd love to just feed all of our this unlimited amount of food we have to a to a herd of pigs um, and sell the bacon because you, you can sell a bake, bacon for a lot more than you can for uh, a yard of of compost. Uh, but unfortunately, we just can't have pigs in the city here. Sure. Um, I would say that like the the rabbit though, when it comes to the manure product, yeah, is the probably holy grail of, um, of <laughs> livestock. If I look at something like hog manure, I have a certain amount of, uh, of, of composting of that manure that I need to do. Um, chicken manure, very, very high nitrogen. If I use it to straight, will burn. I've got to compost it and incorporate it in other things and break it down. A rabbit pellet, I can take a big pile of it, throw it right into my garden. I can do that every single day. And all I will do is continue to build soil and fertility and biologic activity, and I can't hurt anything with rabbit pellets. And it's it's very unique in that. There's not a lot of manures that are that immediately available and Two sides to it. It's not just one that won't do any harm, but it will do good. And uh, I've talked to people that raise rabbits that say, oh, yeah, I raise rabbits for meat. But after getting rabbits, if I ever decided I didn't want to eat rabbit anymore, I'd still keep a few of them just for the fertility. No kidding. No kidding. And I think part of that, um, and I could be wrong on this, but is that the rabbit has the rumen at the wrong end of it. So it has to eat right out of its own butt to digest this stuff properly. So it makes two passes through its digestive system, and I think that might be why it's such a unique animal and that you can use its manure right away. Well, if you look at the manure from a rabbit, you know, it doesn't it doesn't have the composition of a typical, like a cow manure patty or something like that. It If it's allowed to dry, it, it pretty much looks like little shredded pieces of vegetable matter. It, and that's why they don't even call it manure. They call yeah, it pellets. It doesn't stink. Rabbits can get the stink after a while, but it's it's generally because they're not being cared for properly. You can throw rabbit manure in your garden every single day, and there's never an odor there. It's I, I would tell you the only thing that I've seen that I think would work, but I've never seen them in a domestic situation. I know people do raise them, but and I, I can't say for sure this is true, but I would think that deer pellets would probably fit the same M.O. because they look the same. Hmm. I have no idea on that, but to me, they are a major source of fertility in the mountains and in the plains and everything. And I remember when we were in um, Colorado this summer, 
we found this one meadow that we were exploring, and the elk had moved to a different meadow by now. They weren't using this anymore, and it was a different time of the year. They changed their migration patterns. But you could tell they had been there heavily back and forth from the tracks and from the manure, and it was literally, it looked like somebody had gone out with a spreader and spread mm-hmm. elk pellets. And the fertility there has to be huge. Mm. I know that's not really sure. what we're talking about, but it's what it is. <laughs> no, that's 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 interesting. And I wonder if the deer um, pellets are very similar to, to rabbit pellets in that effect. I don't think a lot of people farm deer is um, is why you don't have that as a soil building system there. We have we actually have a lot of deer in Victoria, and they're very annoying. Yeah, the deer are a deer is a a large four legged squirrel that can ruin months worth of work overnight if it gets <laughs> into your right. garden or your farm. So it's not that we don't farm deer, but the deer eat our farms. But uh. but what's interesting is that rabbits do the same thing, and we have a very very unique um, story here in Victoria. The University of Victoria was home to thousands of rabbits. Um, the university is actually situated right in the middle of a circular stretch of road. And somebody one day must have dumped a family of rabbits there, and they bred. And it was seen then as kind of the rabbit heaven or the rabbit paradise. So when anybody would buy a pet rabbit that they couldn't take care of anymore, they'd dump it at the University of Victoria. So these rabbits, there, there, there was a higher population of rabbits at that school than students. They were wow. everywhere, and they would eat Everything and they finally got rid of them last year. Um, they they first tried to uh, send a bunch of them uh, to be adopted by some some people in Texas, um, and then the population just went right back up because the the landscapers kept bringing in new food for them, so the rabbits weren't going anywhere. So they finally uh, just had to kill them all. Um, so it's it's not a big problem anymore. There's still some really really speedy rabbits around. And I just don't you think you don't have a large enough population of predators there to keep them in balance. Well, exactly. And, and the and students would sometimes be the predators, but that's not legal, and that's oh, big yeah, we can't be going out and killing and harvesting that resource. I mean, <laughs> exactly. So you know you couldn't do anything about it. You know the thing that gets me is I get a lot of people asking me about rabbits in their garden, getting in there eating your lettuce and your chard and stuff like that. I grew up in Pennsylvania. We had cottontails everywhere. And our our lawn was, I would say, at least 50% clover and chicory. And if you went out in the evening, you'd look down on our garden, and you'd see five, six, seven, eight little brown dots all through the lawn, rabbits. And they almost never went in the garden because they would rather have the chicory and the plantain and the clover so if my belief is had we had the typical Bermuda grass lawn or the Raleigh St. Augustine, we would have had the garden overrun with rabbits. Instead, what we had was in the fall, rabbit meat, right? And you just, <laughs> it's like, you know, hey, we got a month that ends in our guys. Sorry about your luck, you know? And, yeah. uh, and, 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 but I've never had a problem with rabbits in the garden. Not, not at all. Uh, cabbage flies, maybe rabbits never. And I think it's just because they had something they preferred to eat. Mm-hmm. And plus, they're adding their fertility all year uh, for free to that to that lawn of yours. So, and yeah. the cool part was we had the garden kind of down in a, a level area, and so that fertility was just being trickled down by rainwater all the time. Mm. You know, so it's and we didn't plan it that way; it just worked out that way. In fact, I didn't even when I was a kid, and my I guarantee you my grandfather never even thought about that. 
But with the permaculture mindset looking back now, I go, oh, that's why the tomatoes were the size of a grapefruit. <laughs> yeah, it was a system. It was the, it wanted to be a productive system and, and it did it despite, despite, um, despite you and your, your grandfather or whatever. Uh, on your advanced topic, since we've kind of run out a, uh, about an hour already, I just want to yeah. talk about a couple things out of that group sure. and maybe we'll have you back on the future about some others. But I get a lot of questions about composting human manure. Yeah. And I'm not a real big fan of the whole idea. I really? get it, I get it, I understand it, but I, I, I don't know. There's a, it's a, it's a stigma or what, but there is a proper way to do it, right? Yes, and I will have to say, Jack, that composting human manure is one of the things I am most excited about. Um, it's, it, it closes the loop. Um, we have set seven billion people on this planet, and that's a huge, huge, huge resource, probably one of the biggest um, resources that has yet to be used properly. And in many countries, it actually is, and, and in uh, Vietnam and in Asian countries, it's called night soil, and it's extremely valuable. And the, the Vietnamese will decorate their outhouses to be as beautiful as possible so that people will use them and make their humanure deposit so that they can sell it because it's an immensely valuable resource. Um, what we do now is we flush it in. Well, at least here in Victoria, we just uh, deposit it into the ocean. Um, and then that soil fertility that we've just flushed into the ocean has to be made up somewhere else. So we can all be composting, but we're still flushing a huge nutrient resource out into the ocean. And there's a huge stigma about it, and that's absolutely true, and that's the biggest barrier to being able to do this. But I, like I said, I'm more excited about humanure than, than anything else, and once I have my own place, we'll have a three-bin humanure system. And the, the best book written on the subject is called The Humanure Handbook. Um, and it, it, once you read that, I think you'll be converted, because it is, he is just so funny, and he's so spot-on, And he's so knowledgeable about this. I, I think anybody who reads that book um, will realize that they need to just get over the stigma um, and that this really is the way of the future. And the way he describes it, it's so easy to set up and it's so simple. All you need is a sawdust pile um, and you don't even have to put in plumbing with his system. It's quite remarkable, super, super cheap to set up, and all the soil fertility that you ever need. You won't need to bring any outside fertility additions if you're just composting your own waste. So, What about the belief that there are health risks in this in a system like that? There are. Um, if you're an unhealthy person, if you've got, like, if you've got some sort of disease, if you've got ringworm or, or E. coli, um, so the way he gets around that is... He will compost it for two years before he uses it. You can do it for one year if, if everybody who's contributing to the pile is healthy. You don't have any ringworm or disease or E. coli or anything. If you do, then you just compost it for two years. And I've heard of people doing it for three um, years. And this is, I think, with hot batch composting. Um, so I'm, I'm fond of, of the phrase, hot composting forgives all sins. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily 100% true, but um, people will ask me, you know, is there, any, is there any worry about the GMO thing with the food you're using? Is there any worry about 
um, pesticides. And I say the hot composting method hopefully takes care of a lot of that. There's even evidence to suggest that it will take heavy metals out of, out of, uh, out of the soil, um, with hot composting. So if you're doing that and you're, you're doing your due diligence on the amount of time that your piles have to, um, to digest and compost, then you should be, you should be fine. I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about it. I, I'd, I'd say flushing raw human manure into the ocean is going to be a lot riskier than doing your own backyard compost thing. I'd have to agree on that one. Um, the last one I wanted to talk to you about before we wrap up today, um, cause I'm kind of interested in where you're going with this. Sounds a little mm. bit maybe like hugo culture to me. Mm. Um, but compost pits as water storage devices for plants. Yeah. So this is something I actually picked up in a permaculture handbook. Um, what they did was they dug a pit and they filled it almost full with compost and then they put gravel and rocks on the top. And what compost, compost has an immense, immense water storage capacity. And if you've ever run a hose into a large compost bin for 10 minutes, um, and gotten the top part completely wet and then you start flipping it, the water only goes down a few inches. It's really amazing how much water compost will store. So the idea with the compost pit is that it's in a, a huge water storage device that you can use um, maybe in a swale or you can use it near a hula culture or use it uphill from some water thirsty crops and it will soak up water for you and it will act as a water storage device that's even far more effective than um, the landscape is at soaking up water when you're talking about a swale system. So if you ever in any place in kind of your permaculture design area need even more water stored up in one area, then consider a compost pit. Yeah, and I guess that's kind of like what they do with like a banana circle, the same principle. They dig a hole, they fill it with all the organic matter, and they mm. plant around it. Yep, and but the banana circle is um, is categorized as a compost pit in disguise or a compost pile in disguise gotcha. because it works it works really well for that use it and i'm sure that a lot of that is the, the reason that works so well is because it stores an immense amount of water so compost is a very powerful sponge well trevor man thank you for uh, coming back again on the show so soon and giving us such a great overview of composting well thanks Jack. I hope that I hope that people learn something and I and I always say I know more than 99% of people about composting. So therefore I know how little I really know about it and there's so much more that that I just don't have a clue about and I'm and I'm learning more and more every day about it. Well awesome. And again folks, uh, Trevor's website is pedal to pedal. That's like pedal on a bicycle to pedal on a flower. Pedal2Pedal.com. I'll have a link in today's show notes. And if you're interested in starting up a zero-carbon footprint uh, composting uh, business in your area, get in touch with him. He'll help you out. Okay, thanks a lot, Jack. It was great to be on the show again. I'll come back anytime. Absolutely. We'd love to have you back again. Uh, so, folks, with that, this has been today Jack Spirico along with Trevor Van Hemet helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Yeah. 